Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt, Direct Monitor, Gerasimovich. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and on the subject of direct monitoring, I'm using a new audio interface this week, and I don't know how to turn on direct monitoring, <laughs> so I have no idea what I sound like, and I'm praying that I'm not more of a subwoofer than usual. The dichotomy of man over here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we'll be starting our three-week-long series on an incredibly important topic in Russian literature, what is to be done. Who's to say? Tonight, we're reading What is to be Done by Chernyshevsky. Next week, we'll be reading Tolstoy's What is to be Done. And the third and final week, we will be reading Vladimir Lenin's What is to be Done. And who knows, by the end of it, we might actually figure out what is, in fact, to be done. But before we get into our show, we just wanted to give a quick shout out to our newest patron, Jack. Thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping us funded, at least until we figure out exactly what is to be done. Uh, if you are interested in being a cool <laughs> listener like Jack, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not able to support us financially at the moment, but you crave the satisfaction of, you know, helping perhaps your favorite podcast, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It's free, and we actually really like to see them. And I, you know, I, we, got a, we got a couple good reviews, and now I crave the, I crave the attention. So, so please. <laughs> please. Just a crumb of attention. Just a crumb. Just a crumb. Um, yes, thank you for all the updates. But before we get into the reading, uh, Matt, what are you drinking today? I am taking the bourbon that my girlfriend left closest to me. It is called Larceny. It mm. is good. It is good bourbon. That's how I feel nice. about all bourbon. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> it's bourbon. good. It's good. What are you drinking today? Uh, speaking of bourbon, I'm also drinking something related. Uh, I'm drinking a stout called Dragon's Milk, which is a bourbon, arrow ba bourbon barrel aged stout, tangentially related. That sounds good. You've got a. I don't like stouts, but you have had a series of them on here where I've been like, "Hmm, these actually sound pretty good." If you don't like stouts, if of anything, I would recommend Dragon's Milk because hmm. it really does have a strong uh, bourbon characteristic, and it's also just like I don't know, really smooth drinking. The only catch is that that it is ten dollars a bottle, so uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's approaching the price of just regular bourbon. Yeah, it's approaching the price of I can. I have to buy this for the podcast because I'm running out of things in my local store to buy for the podcast. <laughs> so I guess I'll buy this even though it's $10, but hey, it's for the podcast. <laughs> hey, you know what? If uh, Maybe we'll just incorporate it as an LLC and you can write that off as a business expense this year. I'm pretty sure that's how taxes work. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I've learned. And in, in, in the brief time I was doing receipt entering for a workplace I did is that I'm pretty certain my boss claimed anything and everything as a business expense. So maybe that's the secret. Legal, as it should be. Well... Yeah. What is to be done about that, Cameron? <laughs> Bosses, business expenses. Oh, we got a riveting show coming up for you. Oh, yeah, we do. Before we do that, I just want to ask, because this is a really funny story. Matt, why are you direct monitoring this week? Oh, yeah, I was hoping we could just gloss over that. Okay, so Cameron, <laughs> it all goes back many, many moons ago um, to a time when... I didn't know how to use direct monitoring on my audio interface, so I tried to do it through my recording software instead, and I always sounded like a really echoey boy, and you were always talking about direct monitoring, and I was like, I don't understand how he does this. It sounds really bad when you listen to it. 
And then you said there's a switch. And yes, it's one of the two switches that exist on my audio <laughs> interface. So I probably should have seen it before. And now my whole life has changed and I can never go back. So yeah. And like the dichotomy of man this week, as just as you figured out that there is direct monitoring on yours, <laughs> I have lost direct monitoring on my end. So I, I'm looking at the at my recording right now. And I have genuinely no idea what it sounds like. And that's terrifying to me. I mean, it sounds it sounds good to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. We're a very good sounding <laughs> podcast, if I do say I mean, so myself. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> uh, okay. Well. well, before we just get into a circle of self-congratulation, uh, let's start talking about, let's talk about what is to be done. And let's talk, yeah, let's talk about a book that is basically a circle of self-congratulation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, let's talk about Nikolai Chernyshevsky. I'm only going to talk briefly about his life because he would probably rather that you didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, so Chernyshevsky was the son of an Orthodox priest, as were many of the uh, authors on this podcast for some reason. Uh, his father gave him a very thorough education even before he entered uh, secondary schooling. Uh, by the time he entered seminary school at age 14, he proved to have an intelligence surpassing many of his peers and even a, uh, a reading background that surpassed some of his teachers. By the time he graduated at age 18, he enrolled in St. Petersburg State University, uh, where he studied literature, among many other subjects. He went on to graduate in 1850, and although he did have aspirations to enter academia as uh, sort of a literature studies person, I'm not exactly certain what specific degree he was working for. The Russian university system is confusing today, let alone in 1850, so mm -hmm. maybe I'll have to, to spend a week learning about that before we can really get into the <laughs> t technicals of it. It's a bad um, field. I don't know how much of an idiot you'd have to be to study, say, Russian literature at a very high level. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. Uh, yeah, perhaps. This didn't pan out, his academic aspirations, and he went on to be a teacher occasionally and, uh, most importantly, a writer uh, for the journal Sovremennik, which translates to the contemporary in English. That was a journal that... Uh, published many of the important writers of the day, uh, notably for our podcast, Chernyshevsky, and tangentially for our podcast, Turgenev. Um, they also published translated books, especially, uh, again, in relation to this podcast, uh, George Sand's books, uh, which were, if you want to boil it down to its most basic, George Sand was a, a French writer who wrote many books, which you could call feminist texts uh, of, of their time. Well, a writer for this magazine, he really kind of was the the one of the radical writers and this came back to bite him in 1862 uh when there was a crackdown on radicalism in russia and he ends up being arrested on mostly fabricated charges and imprisoned on in peter and paul fortress uh, peter and paul fortress is this small island uh, kind of in the north of saint petersburg uh, which if you look at it today it's like really nice and they've got this great admiralty spire and there's like i don't know if it's a functional or just a ceremonial mint there super nice also it was a secret prison they got a beach they got a beach yeah i think that they really glossed over the prison part when we were yeah. on our tour they were like look at the beach and the mint and here's a church and if you'll walk through the prison cells oh <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> this is where they held secret executions and <laughs> yeah uncomfy <laughs> Yeah, here's Leon Trotsky's cell. Yep. <laughs> here's the cell that Vladimir Lenin's older brother was in before he was executed. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I guess it's fine for remembrance, perhaps, but it's just like 
strange the way it's like the the pictures of people who were famous that were in prison there yeah. i don't know it's really yeah. it was it was weird yeah 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 <clears throat> so he was in prison there and uh because at this point they were not they were not very good at they were there was a huge censorship apparatus in in imperial russia i don't have to remind you that uh, somehow of all of Karl Marx's works, Das Kapital was the only book that wasn't censored in Russia, <laughs> somehow. Well, um, what are you going to do? Read the whole freaking thing? Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's like a lot of pages, dude. Come on. I think that might have actually been the reasoning of the censors for not banning that book. I, yeah. I, it, you can't pay a government clerk enough to read that book. <laughs> um, so he got, Chernyshevsky got permission to write a fictional book. And while he was in prison, he wrote "What Is to Be Done" over the period of about seven, over the period of about four months. It's not exactly addressing what he wanted to address because, <laughs> obviously, the prison censors looked it over before he sent it out. Uh, but he wrote it just vaguely enough, and the censors were just bad enough at their job that he managed to get it out without many major edits. Mm-hmm. In one of the funnier ironies of history, the manuscript, which would go on to be published in the Sofremenik, actually the the editor lost it in a cab. And he went on to, he posted an ad in the St. Petersburg Police Gazette for it when someone actually returned it to him. Uh, and of course, what is to be done would go on to be one of the most important books for almost every single radical to overthrow this system in Russia. So. Also, okay, just hear me out. If some cabbie had not returned that, I would not have had to read it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more maybe a moral negative overall. Yeah, who's to say? <laughs> yeah, so that's basically Chernyshevsky's life as it relates to this particular podcast. After he was exiled, he kind of spent the next two decades of his life basically puttering about in poverty and exile until very late in life he was able to return to a not well populated area of Russia and, and basically died there. So after this, he really did not do much of note. There were a couple other books he wrote, nothing that really caught the public attention. Although certainly it's been noted that his later works were literarily superior to this one, but that's not really as important. Uh, and that's Chernyshevsky. I also want to talk a little bit about the Russian Empire, uh, or late Russian Empire, and to kind of give the context of where this book came from. So life in the late Russian Empire, which if you've been listening to our podcast, uh, you'll know was kind of kind of bad. It was not a great time to exist. <laughs> um, keep in mind that this is a society in which the vast, vast majority of the Russian population is uh, still enslaved, impoverished, and illiterate prior to 1861. The civil service, which although the table of ranks which had been created for it was intended to create a more meritocratic system, has just become a total quagmire, which has you know reinforced a, an image-driven society as we covered in many of uh, Google's biting satires of the times he lived in. Um, keep in mind that that's only that only applies to the civil service. That level of of class and even profession stratification existed society wide. In like the merchants were on different terms than I don't know the the farmers who are on different terms than the etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Everyone was just really stuck in their class, and it was a good time for for basically no one unless you were nobility. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, guess that's I guess that's been true for all of history. One of the most important things to note about this era is in the late 1840s and 1850s, the ability to attain a higher education became more common for non-nobles. This is notable because uh, whereas nobles being educated and then given purpose and then inheriting a lot of money, kind of gave them an elite level in society, which benefited them. However, 
non-nobles being educated now came out and were just as disenfranchised as they were before, essentially, leading to a class of intelligentsia who were not exactly pro-Russian state because they were now educated enough to realize how bad things are for the majority of Russian people. And also, it's bad for them. So, you know, they can't even be bought off like the children of, of nobility who are being educated in these systems. Which creates a lot of radicalism, which we are, of course, familiar with uh, through the coming years. <laughs> it would be this generation that would spawn the Narodnaya Volya, which would go on to assassinate Alexander II, as well as many other ministers and, and uh, members of the Russian government throughout the this Russian Empire. And it would be this generation that spawned many of the thinkers, which would heavily influence the later successful revolutionaries, especially Nikolai Chernyshevsky. In 1855, after Russia has been pretty thoroughly thrashed in the Crimean War, Alexander II, who prior to his assassination attempt was actually somewhat of a reformer, or at least attempted reformer, uh, put forth a really broad swath of, of ideas and policies to overhaul the Russian Empire as a whole, civil society, universities, etc., etc. However, part of that was rolling back censorship, and keep in mind that censorship was total in the Russian Empire, and that rolling back of censorship allowed a lot of public discussion over these policies, and especially in the university context, a lot of uh, young student-educated conversation about these policies. And what a lot of people found were basically, this isn't enough. This is not going to change what's going wrong. We need to do more. We need to do more, uh, which Alexander II was definitely not down for. So basically, he tried to uh, put the cork back on Pandora's box and redid a lot of the policies about censorship in an attempt to stifle any public debate about this so his way can go forward without pushing him to do more than he wants to do. This is where you get a generation of radicals who come to the realization that there can be no reforming of the system. Uh, of course, as we, as we see in Turgenev's Fathers and Children, there's a, a sort of sense among many that there needs to be an evolutionary step that we can take what is what is good about our society and then just change the things which are bad and we'll get to the next step which is good for everyone um what the realization that chernyshevsky and other radicals of his era come to is that the problem is the power system itself and the power system that is our czar system that's never going to give up its own power so the liberal classes which are hoping on kind of incremental change are basically self-defeating because they what what they want also requires the czar system to not exist and what we want requires the czar system to not exist the difference between us and the liberals is that we have the the guts or the gall to call for the abolition of the czar system whereas they call for an impossibility the czar system to prescribe itself out of existence so when you see a lot of hardline ideas coming out of this era, that's basically why, because they came of an era when they realized that the power systems that be were going to stifle any attempt at change. And the conclusion they came to was that you kind of have to be hardline because there's no way to achieve this progress incrementally because it will always be stifled by greater military powers, essentially. And that's the context in which um, Chernyshevsky is really being radicalized with his particular social socialist ideas which are a really interesting mix and that's one of the things that i do kind of enjoy about what is to be done because he puts forth a really interesting mix of ideas which we'll get into yeah but <laughs> wow um Chernyshevsky takes on the libs what is to be done is reputed matt to be a a terrible god-awful book mm -hmm. how did you feel finally reading it uh i think we shared almost the identical reaction which was 
one, oh my goodness, this is a really long book. And then two, you open it and you start reading. And you're like, okay, this is not that bad. And then you're getting into it and you're like, this is actually pretty good. And then you get like halfway and then you're like, oh, you don't think you need to write anymore. You could have probably stopped it there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't I don't think the whole book is awful, but it does. By the time you're done, you're like, this was awful. Yeah, I, but that goes along with the fact that uh, Chernyshevsky at this point, this was his first novel. He's not a good writer. <laughs> no, he's not a stylist. He's not like this isn't intended to be. I honestly, I don't even know if it's really intended to be read as literature. It's basically a work of philosophy in many ways. Philosophy and politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even at the beginning of the book, in the preface, he says as much. And when which he says that this is not a good book. Essentially, he comes out mm-hmm. swinging in the in the preface to this book, where he um he opens with a, a mystery about. A man who mysteriously shoots himself on the bridge, and the next chapter is him saying, "Haha, I tricked you. There's no intrigue in this book. Uh, I only did that because you're all dumb and want excitement. And if I started off with what I wanted to start off with, you would have stopped reading. So now that you're five pages in, you're stuck with me. Um, you've got to sit your uneducated ass down, and I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you some things. Also, I'm a terrible writer, so that's not the point of this book. I'm trying to put forth ideas to you." Yeah, well, I can give a quick summary if you'd be into that. Please do. I would love to hear a quick summary. I, I am going to keep it quick just because I think like we were saying, the the actual action and words of the book, I guess, are not the main point. Really trying to, this is one you really got to contextualize because if you read it 200 years after, you're like, wow, this one kind of sucks. But <laughs> if, if you were to read it at the time, I think you would kind of see why people were we're feeling a certain way about it. So it is, I mean, it's written as basically a direct response to Turgenev's Fathers and Children. And then it spawns Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, which was written as a direct response to this. So all these things were written like a year apart, like two years apart from each other. So really compressed period of time, even though it kind of feels like, uh, you know, old people times when time moves slower, of course. So... Our novel, as Cameron said, uh, it starts with the 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 man who shoots himself on the bridge, and then it, it pivots over to <laughs> our our main hero pretty quickly, uh, Vera Pavlovna, who uh, she learns about the tragic death of her husband, and that's <laughs> like the like the preface. That's kind of just how it starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The first major part of the book is devoted to learning about Vera and her life. It's it's bad. Her mom's abusive. She she doesn't doesn't really enjoy it. Her mom tries to set her up on, on a match with this guy Stereshnikov, who for it's unclear if he's really trying to get married or if he's just trying to win a bet with his friends. And Vera sees this because she's not an idiot, and so there's this really like uh, kind of fun to watch from the outside dynamic play out between her, who knows what's happening, uh, Stereshnikov, yeah. who's an idiot, and her mom, who also doesn't really understand what's happening. But Vera's mom thinks that it's a, a lucrative match, and it technically would be in pure financials, I guess, but she obviously doesn't want that, so she keeps stringing it out, and eventually she meets uh, Lopukov. I'm pretty sure the stress is right on that. Who's to say? <laughs> uh, he's a medical student. He comes as uh, Vera's little brother's tutor, and uh, her, him and Vera, uh, they, they, they like each other, and they... Over many, many pages, get to kind of know each other and their ideals. And they, they have a similar mind and are able to kind of communicate 
uh, not just non-verbally, but in a sort of code that Vera's mom doesn't really understand. Yeah. And then they get married, and it's 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 not actually. I mean, the the whole time Chernyshevsky is telling you like they're gonna get married, they're gonna get married, and so when they get married, it's like yeah, I guess you know that makes sense. And then the the <laughs> I guess what I would classify as like the middle part or the second part, probably one of the most important parts is Vera setting up her sewing workshop, which is like I like that part. I thought it was pretty cool. It's kind of like the main feature that's actually important to understand about this book or at least one of the two or three i would say yeah definitely it reminds me of like when i was a kid playing on my computer and you'd have like those restaurant games and you have to like build them up and i would I know, that, was, that was my <laughs> thing when i was a kid and yeah. so like this was that and basically she runs like a, a workers commune where profits are shared and people <laughs> are treated humanely uh pretty radical ideas i know um <laughs> And it's like wildly successful and she's great at running it and everybody is is great there and everybody who comes in uh, can be more or less assimilated to this lifestyle. They do all sorts of things like they all uh, eventually most of them live together so that they can buy goods in bulk and save money and it's right. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, just cool stuff. Just cool stuff. Just just girl things, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so during this time, Vera, she falls in love with her husband's friend from medical school, Kirsanov. Uh, if you recall a little uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge at Turgenev's Kirsanov from Fathers and Children. And she doesn't realize that that's what's happening at first. And she has like this whole dream about it. And she tells her husband and her husband, who is older than her, I, I guess, um, is, is able to with his loads of life experience as a medical student can divine that this is what's happening and in order to basically get himself out of the way of this he he leaves to under the guise of seeing his family and he kills himself um because he he thinks that vera is going to forever feel guilted be yeah because she's going to feel like in like indebted to him for in effect saving her from her bad situation he doesn't want that he wants her to actually pursue Kirsanov. so instead of like having her feel bad about uh the the yeah Kirsanov, he goes and then she can feel bad because now he's dead i guess so i guess she's still kind of feeling bad either way but uh yeah i mean she remarries within like a month right that's a pretty long time in russian society to be unmarried <laughs> I guess um, <laughs> she uh, so she starts a new a new shop in, in a different part of town when she, she moves in with her new husband and uh, her husband becomes a, a famous professor and it's it's a whole great thing. And there's this series of events that transpires as uh, her husband cures someone who cures a woman who who knows a guy who knows another guy who's this guy from the U.S., Charles Beaumont. And it turns out that Beaumont is actually Lopakov. Oh, and he didn't commit suicide. Oh, but he went to America and became an industrialist, maybe? Unclear? (laughs) A fact that's only hinted out every single time that Chernyshevsky mentions the suicide, Mm -hmm. the supposed suicide. And it's honestly not even like clever because there were times where I was, I had to turn back and be like, wait, he did just say he killed him, right? Because it kind of seems like here he's not dead. Um, So... Yeah, so the the Beaumont family settles next to the Kirsanovs, and everybody lives happily ever after, picnicking, sleigh riding, what is to be done? 
(laughs) (laughs) Best to be done. Sleigh riding, I guess. I mean, yeah. So that is, that's 400 pages, by the way. That's not, this is, that's like a a short story's worth amount of content of story. Yep. (laughs) This is 400 pages, which we did not know when we committed to reading this in one week. It's 400 pages where like three things happen. Yeah. Yeah. But you do spend like five pages on things that don't matter. Yeah, I think like the thing we should talk about is somebody who doesn't factor into the summary because yes. I, for the other, for probably the significance of the book, Chernyshevsky throughout like 30 or 40 pages, he has somebody give Vera some bad news and he's kind of like a side character throughout some very, very small parts of the the other book. His name is Rachmetov and he is like the bizarre of of this universe except he is not hypocritical he's just like this is his this is his character that he wants to look at and be like that's what we should strive to be but instead we can be like these other people and this dude is an absolute unit that's the most important thing you should know about him absolutely i mean actually there's a footnote i think that says absolute unit when he's first mentioned it's crazy (laughs) (laughs) the very first thing he does when he's introduced really i mean there's a few times he's mentioned before this but the very first action you get from him is when vera is having a wake for her supposedly dead husband and this guy goes off by himself in the study and (laughs) while alone in the study and looking for a book that interests him he takes a a piece of ham and black bread out of his pocket which together weigh about four pounds (laughs) eats all of it then drinks half a carafe of water and i I think i I did just write absolute unit in my book right here uh, not realizing that i thought this was supposed to be exaggerated like i don't know maybe chernyshevsky didn't have a good sense of what humans eat but no this dude's supposed to be like a russian paul bunyan essentially yep he's cool I guess. <laughs> Let's discuss the character of Rachmatov because he is. I think everything else we can we can talk to talk about him kind of follows from you needing to know that this dude is a. He has a set of beliefs which are not really elaborated on, probably because uh, Chernyshevsky is writing from prison and knows these are going. This is going to be read by censors, but he's got a vague ideology which he aspires to become perfect to achieve, and his whole life is based around becoming better at physically preparing himself for this he at the age of like 16 comes to st petersburg in order to uh, learn meets kirsanov and and kirsanov gives him a bunch of book recommendations it's said that he stays up for three straight days reading all of these uh, and then goes to find more and he decides that he he needs to do away with all unnecessary things really his whole life becomes predicated around getting ready for doing revolution essentially uh, he becomes an absolute. He becomes super strong. It's mentioned that he eats nothing but beef most of the time. He's just <laughs> he eats just only eats beef. He'll eat other foods if it is something that peasants might eat, but otherwise he just he just eats beef. It's mentioned that he feels bad for every ruble that he spends on any food that's not beef. Uh, <laughs> he's very strong. He can do the work of like three or four men. Uh, he works around the Russian Empire. He even leaves the country and goes to travel around Europe as a whole, just ending up in weird places, giving his money to philosophers that he likes, just sneaking on the boats, proving himself to be really good at just being strong. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back to Russia, reacquaintance with some of his old friends, especially Kirsanov, and becomes kind of a confidant of Lopukov, which is part of the reason why he's delivering the bad news to Vera, essentially. So he's an absolute hardliner. He's even willing to, one day he, he turns his bed into a bed of nails 
and just lays on it just to test himself. And when Kirsanov goes to check in on him, he just finds <laughs> this dude in an apartment just covered with blood. Uh, and the guy seems really self-satisfied, even though he's probably on the verge of death with how much blood he's lost. But I think it's unspoken that he's preparing himself for probably torture uh, at the yeah. hands of the Tsarist, yeah. uh, the Tsarist secret police. So he's dedicated his whole life to this. He doesn't do anything that's not for the cause of, of preparing himself for an unstated goal, but probably socialist revolution, as Chernyshevsky might have actually intended the reader to take away from it. It's like almost his whole life because he does come from a wealthy family, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Kind He kind of does. So this is a fun thing with Russian inheritance laws that I've been reading about because this is what I learn about in my fun time. It, like part <laughs> of the issue during this period of time was that Russian inheritance laws were actually in some ways more progressive than what you would recognize in Western Europe. Uh, where in a lot of Western European countries, the eldest male would get all of the property and the title. Uh, whereas in Russia, uh, the like all the kids are getting titles; yeah. they're all getting land. So the the fortunes are going to grow smaller and smaller and smaller with each generation, uh, because they have to be divided between all the kids. So yeah, so he's he comes from a wealthy family, but it's like I think they mentioned he's not like the wealthy wealthy ones. He's kind of like one of the cousins. Um, yeah, but it doesn't matter anyways because he sells all of his land and gives away a lot of his money. And he's really actually just he's just very ascetic, which is something that goes it's a through line all the way to mm -hmm. the Bolshevik Revolution. It's going to form a really core piece of Bolshevik ideology and literature during the early 1920s and also all the way into like socialist realism. You're going to get characters who are very ascetic. They they don't eat a lot or they don't eat, you know, luxurious foods. They don't have sex. They prioritize work over everything. They're just like very strong in general, like male or female. They're just like they're just absolute units ready, ready to do a revolution. If you know what I mean? Like, that's it. At one point, it's mentioned that um, a widow falls in love with him and proposes marriage after knowing him for about a week. Also running over him with her carriage, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I guess that's why they have to spend time together, because he's lost <laughs> a big chunk of his leg and she needs to help him not die. <laughs> and then she falls in love with him and then he basically <laughs> rejects her and says, I, you know, I will never become what I want to be. I need to achieve and, and being married will only slow me down. It does put him in contrast to the other three main characters of our book, Vera, uh, Dmitri, or Loprakov, and Kirsanov. Um, at one point, because <laughs> um, Chernyshevsky absolutely does not believe in subtext. He's trying to write a piece of art that has very clear morals. Uh, so anytime there's any, any potential for ambiguity, he comes out and starts addressing you, the reader. And when uh, Rachmatov is here, mm -hmm. he says that the, the purpose of Rachmatov is basically to show you that although you may have guessed that Vera and the rest are the heroes of our book because they're instituting workers' cooperatives and fighting for the equal treatment of children and, and fighting against unjust laws, really they're just the baseline. And the stepping stone that we really want are people like Rachmatov, who are people that are, are very few and far between, and even he as the writer would not recommend that you pursue a path like this. Uh, then adding the caveat that although, of course, the Rachmatovs among you will say, I'm going to do that anyway, so it doesn't matter what I tell you, even though I would recommend that this will only lead to sad things for you personally. 
um, <laughs> this is like who we should aspire to be. This is he only exists to show you what is actually good because you know Vera and the rest may seem good to you, but that's only because of the context in which you exist, the Russian audience, that they are above the average person. But really, they're just the, they should be the baseline. Yeah, I think the things that he takes issue with with Vera and their cooperative are probably things that we look at today and be like, well, that's kind of stupid. But for instance, like the cooperative, they buy sugar in bulk, and that's something that's marked in this book as being something that should be conserved or or not used in order to be a, a true revolutionary, for instance. So yeah. th- there's like things like that. Like they get time off. They have like l- like vacation time, basically. Yeah. Uh, whereas Chernyshevsky is kind of saying that I guess like no days off the ideal part. Yeah. The, the, the ideal person is going to do is going to take no days off. Yeah. I mean, well, so his, um, at, at one point in the book, and I want to come back to the, to the workers collective in a moment, it follows the life of Vera Kirsanov and, uh, Luprakov as they kind of have an idle life. And, Chernyshevsky addresses the reader directly in this portion, and he says, The idle life isn't for me, but, you know, I don't like walking or asparagus either, which, first of all, there will be no abuse of asparagus in my server. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is a a (laughs) pro-asparagus-only zone. Um, But then he says, But just because something is not to my taste doesn't mean it can't be good. And the idle life, um, although you can criticize it, the fact that the real problem here is that it's enjoyed by only a few. The idle life enjoyed by all would be ideal in the same way that uh, the opera enjoyed by only five is not an economically viable opera, but the opera as it is, which is enjoyed by Petersburg as a whole, is completely economically viable. Essentially advocating for a society in which after you follow the, the revolution, that's when the life you want is achievable, but not before. Mm-hmm. So many of the problems he has with this workers' cooperative as it, as it exists, I think, come from him saying, well, that's kind of premature. Yeah. You want to talk about why Dostoevsky hated this book? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. I don't think it'll take too long because Chernyshevsky repeats this idea like over and mm. over and over. Yeah. And the core of the book is just that if you take people who are in bad situations and you give them uh, an environment in which they can thrive, basically, mm. that they will do that. And that's what Vera's worker collective is supposed to show there's explicit mention of women who used to be prostitutes and after getting a chance to work at at vera's shop they are all of a sudden model workers and members of society and they always go to vera to confess that they used to do this and she would be shocked um vera has a a dream where she's inspecting soil and trying to figure out uh, why do certain plants grow and others don't and, you know, if you just rearrange the atoms of, of the dirt, can you get something that will be different? Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, what Chernyshevsky is really trying to to nail home, which is in pretty clear contrast to Notes from the Underground, where, you know what, maybe I'm just going to let my tooth hurt. <laughs> and that's because I, I want to feel the pain uh, because I, cause I want it. Just just because. Just because. I will take bad things because I, I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which mm-hmm. does stand in stark contrast to Chernyshevsky, who's trying to put forth an idea of going back to your idea of the dream in the soil that the soil you have determines the plants you grow. So if you have unhealthy soil, you're going to grow unhealthy plants. So he's essentially trying to explain societal ills, poverty, sickness, 
all these things by saying, well, is it really that strange when you consider that we live in a society which is thoroughly corrupt, um, mm -hmm. that we these are the people we're producing? Because his view of humanity is essentially, I guess you could call it stagnant, and that a person is, he, he kind of puts forth this idea of self-interested egoism, uh, which is not altogether different from Ayn Rand, although he kind of comes to a different conclusion than Ayn Rand does, and I bring her up because she was actually influenced by this book as well, mm -hmm. that every person is out to maximize their pleasure and minimize their pain. And so... In a society in which the incentives are for people to be self-interested, well, that's they're trying to maximize their pleasure within that society. So if we want to take this, this system and like good and evil, that's irrelevant. What is relevant is that every individual person is trying to is, is a rational egoist. They're trying to maximize their personal pleasure. So we need to we can't change a person, but we can change the incentives under which they're acting. So in this new system, even the wicked people who act only for themselves and even uh, will never be able to to you know, do things for other people, they will recognize that this system is good for them. So even if a person is wicked, they will act for this system because they're acting for their pure self-interest, be they wicked or be they good. Which is what Dostoevsky, as you pointed out, later goes on to say, well, what if you just want to be wicked to be wicked? Maybe I'm just kind of a yep, piece of shit. <laughs> Maybe I am. Maybe I had a perfectly yep. fine upbringing and I'm still just a bad person because I mm -hmm. choose to be. But I want, to, I want to go back to the, the collective for a second, because I think this is really interesting. Like we've said, Chernyshevsky keeps addressing you, the reader, and he even addresses his characters a lot. A lot of times he'll break away into several pages to address, oh, Vera, or oh, Matriona. You know, he writes them a letter as if they're real people and, and says, you know, don't even, don't condemn her for her actions. And, and I think that's really interesting because he... This is the way in which it really is more of a philosophical text than a liter literary book, because this... Breaking the fourth wall, although I think it can be done well, it really isn't in this book. It's really heavy-handed, but that's because it, that's what it is meant to be. It's meant for Chernyshevsky to basically take out all ambiguity and say, don't get it wrong, this is exactly what I mean uh, by this. Mm -hmm. um, all but that being said, there are a few places which I think are... Do you have some literary value? I did want to point out um, uh, very early in the book, uh, when Vera is talking to her mother, who is very abusive, uh, one night her mother, uh, Maria, kind of comes into... Um, Vera's room very drunk and she says and this is really the only moment of probably empathy her daughter has for her uh, her mother says I've had a hard life Verochka I don't want yours to be like it may you live in wealth I've suffered so many torments Verochka so very many you don't remember what our life was like before your father became the manager here we were so poor so very poor and I was an honest woman then Verochka no longer no I won't commit another sin I won't lie to you I won't tell you that I'm an honest person no, indeed, that time is long past. Verichka, you're an educated person, and I'm not. Still, I know everything that's written in those books of yours. It says that one shouldn't be treated the way I was. You're dishonest, people say. And as for your father, yes, he is your father. He's a poor fool, but he too taunts and humiliates me. Then I was overcome by meanness. If other people say I'm dishonest, I might as well be. And then Nadenko was born. So what of it? Whose fault was that? And who was it that got a good job? My sin was less than his in his in this case. They took her away from me, her being Nadenka, uh, Vera's sister, off to a foundling home. I never even found out where she was. I couldn't get to see her. I don't know if she's still alive. How could she be? It hurt so much. Uh, but back then it wasn't easy. I turned even more vicious. Then I turned mean. And our f affairs started to improve. Who do you think got the job for your fool of a father? Me. And who do you think got him made manager? Me again. And then we started to live well. Why? Because I turned dishonest and mean. That's why. I know, Verichka, in your books it says only dishonest and mean people prosper. It's all true. 
Your books say that we're not supposed to live like this. Don't you think I know that, Verochka? But in those books of yours, it says that in order to not live like this, everything has to be organized differently. Now, no one can live any other way. So why don't they hurry up and set up a new order? It's kind of a long quote, but basically, I think that's kind of the thesis of this book, and that there are a, a lot of people who are so thoroughly trapped in their despair that they have to be mean, ugly, in order to pursue their rational interest in this, their society, that it can only be in a new order that they are able to not be that. But so many people are trapped in the idea that they, there will be no order. Like uh, Vera's mother goes on to say um, that, you know, th that's all fancy. So let's just be mean in our current order. And then Chernyshevsky goes on through the book and say, well, no, we don't have to be mean. We can express our rational self-interest in a way which creates this new order, essentially. Which is where we really see um, Vera setting up the, the workers' cooperative in the sewing shop. Because she demonstrates to the sew seamstresses that it actually works in your rational self-interest to kind of work together. So when we set up shop, um, Vera, instead of, although she is the owner, ends up sharing all the profits with all the seamstresses. And she involves them in all the decisions. And they begin to, as Matt mentions, they begin to kind of set up a small bank for themselves. And instead of buying their cloth separately, they buy it together because they can buy it for cheaper in bulk. And even the same goes for buying just regular goods and they buy an apartment complex together and they begin to do everything everything collectively because uh, that's how they get things done essentially which is kind of like a baseline of Chernyshevsky putting forth the idea of the commune which is not new but of course he's putting it forth in a in a book of literature theoretically rather than a pure philosophical text but I don't know I think like Matt said I don't know if there's something you wanted to really touch on but the first half of this book is really interesting, just as, not as a piece of literature. If you, <laughs> if you ask me if this is a good <laughs> book, I would tell you, Jesus Christ, God, no. The fourth wall breaking is obnoxious. Despite his uh, really interesting feminist critiques of a lot of Russian society, and frankly, this, some of this is um, probably even pressing today in Russian and or our own society, um, it's just so paternalistic. <laughs> that being said, yeah. as a philosophy yeah. piece, this is really interesting. Um, of the philosophies of the time. I think that's really good. Second half of the book, after you reach, like, if you're reading the Katz translation after, like, page 300, the interest in the book really kind of drops off a cliff. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, like, should you read it if you have a free hour on a Saturday? No. Uh, should you read it if you really, really, really are out of any other Russian literature to read? I guess you could. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, like... I don't know, there's more interesting stuff than we've mentioned. Characters who are, I think, kind of representative of um, other classes he saw. Of course, he's indirectly responding to fathers and children, so you do have people who are indirectly kind of critiques of their characters. You could very easily read Lopurkov as an attempt to create a Bazaroff that the radicals would actually agree with rather than one that's a projection of a, of a Russian liberal. Uh, radical as he was for a Russian liberal, liberal uh, Turgenev, I mean. And also, while we're, well, well, I mean, you said fathers and children, so now I can talk about it again. <laughs> they talk about dissecting frogs in this book a little bit. They do, they do. Oh, yeah, they do. They mentioned it. That is one of the main things that Kirsanov and Loperkov do. So, I mean, just if you and a couple boys, you know, want to relive the glory days of medical students dissecting frogs, this could, <laughs> this could be a book for that. This could you be know, for you. One of the two. Yeah, and yeah. like we've mentioned, this book went on to have a huge effect in the Russian radical movement. And if you read it, you'll you will see why. So if that's something you're interested in, it, you should read this. Um, 
Vladimir Lenin, who has said, practically knew this book by heart. Um, of course, it had a big impact. Obviously, Dostoevsky hated it and wrote Notes from Underground. <laughs> had a huge impact in the Russian Empire at the time it was published. Like, you would not guess it by how it never shows up in any like list of books you should read of the Russian Empire. With the exception of... I want to bring this up. It's not really related to the podcast, but Matt told me about this, and I was I was glad that Matt and I both found this. People severely misreading the importance, or like exactly why what is to be done is important, because Matt and I both stumbled yep. upon the same political ar ar uh, article. And uh, what was the title of that, Matt? So, so the title is the most politically dangerous book you've never heard of: How One Obscure Russian Novel Launched Two of the Twentieth Century's Most Destructive Ideas. Um. Obscure is a bold word for a really well-known book at the, t at the time it was written, I think. To be fair, uh, writers very rarely choose their titles, and I assume the same yes. is true for Politico, so this is probably just some editor who's trying to create a strangely clickbaity title for Politico. As Matt and I were discussing, Politico, of like the Washington, D.C.-based establishments, is by far not the worst uh, one, so it's kind of weird that they chose an article uh, title that's this clickbaity yeah especially because the politically dangerous is like <laughs> that's that's a really strong word for he happened to advocate some ideas that people like it's like you point out it's really dependent on the time period it, it's written like today if you read this you this this title might give you the impression that like oh my god this is going to reveal the secrets of stalinism to me mm -hmm. or whatever and then you read it and it's like what the fuck why is it about sewing cooperatives <laughs> 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 yeah yeah i don't know the title the title just was not it was not a will I mean, the article itself is like you know i think it's fine i think it's a bold move to equate ayn rand in the soviet union uh and, <laughs> but you know yeah i just i it was it just more russia specialists should write things so that things come up higher than other articles <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that relates to the the series, this whole series that maybe less so for Leo Tolstoy is what is to be done because presumably, actually, very few people outside of people who are really interested yeah. in this area yeah. of Russian literature have ever read that. Um, but Vladimir Lenin's "What Is to Be Done" I think is going to fall under the same category of people being like, you know, if you read this, you're instantly going to fall down a rabbit hole where you read suddenly you have all the knowledge imparted by rules for radicals and then suddenly stalinism <laughs> is gonna happen for radicals. <laughs> stalinism Cultural is gonna happen marxism for the 21st century <laughs> yeah it's just gonna be like arguing with i don't know with plekhanov about grain production or something it's just like it's just this weird tendency to look at books and be like this is a dangerous book rather than this is a book that advocates some ideas that some people use that had some pretty shitty outcomes which like it's not politically dangerous it's just it advocates for a set of ideas that some other people took and ran with yeah so sorry politico sorry politico <laughs> just uh you, you failed us this time <laughs> you're in thin ice politico i might unsubscribe from your 6 a.m newsletters <laughs> don't you tell me politico <laughs> all right well mm. i feel like that's about uh Kind of all we got on yeah. this first what is to be done if we are to stay within a reasonable time frame. So Yes, we could cover more, but it's 400 pages, so we'll be moving on for now. If you want to read more, definitely pick it up yourself. It's uh, Pick up the Michael Katz translation, I would say. Yeah, it was good. The footnotes were, were helpful. Really helpful yeah. to have an actual historian annotating it as you go along. 
Yeah. Turner CFC really writes this for, for his contemporaries. There's so many references that you will really only understand if you were an intellectual contemporary of his. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Russia boy. I study Russia, Russian literature. And I was like, I, I didn't even know that this was a reference for like a lot of things that I was going through. Yeah. So, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, yes. how drunk are you? Okay. Um, honestly, I've been I've been getting pretty heated. I've been discussing a lot of things, yeah. and I've honestly forgotten my beer. So I'm probably on the same level as Rachmetov, who, uh, among other things, was also a teetotaler. So... <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't really eat meat, so I, I can't say I've come around to his ideas on beef yet. Although, okay, here, I didn't think I was going to say it in the podcast, but I'm going to come out and say it here. The truth needs to be heard. If Rachmatov was a real person and alive today, based on his eating habits, he would be a Joe Rogan experience listener. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to leave that one where it is without further elaboration. Matt, <laughs> where are you on a scale of one to Yeltsin? Um... The, the exact amount where I really needed to hear, I really needed to hear you say that joke, and I got great enjoyment from hearing it a second time. So make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, you already know what we're going to be reading next week. But for the sake of keeping up our usual outro, what are we reading next week, Matt? Next week we are going to be reading Leo Tolstoy's "What Is to Be Done." Hopefully. We'll figure out this time what is to be done. It is, again, definitely not one of his more popular books. So we will have to have an extra drink or two to help us all get through it. Uh, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Jeff, Janice, and Madeline, Daniel, Darren, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well at all. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to help keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. 